lot of people will fantasize, dream about, think about, some will even venture out into hiking one of the big long distance trails, whether it be the Pacific Crest Trail, the Appalachian Trail, the Continental Divide Trail. And doing it once in your life is a really big achievement. Today's guest through hike the Appalachian Trail nine times. Yes, you heard that correct, nine times. He's a legend in the trail community. In fact, in 1973, he set the first fastest known speed record for the Appalachian Trail wearing blue jeans. Yes, some of you may want to hold your ears for that, but he did it wearing blue jeans. With 38,000 miles under his feet, we have with us the founder of the American Long Distance Hikers Association and creator of the Appalachian Trail Institute, Warren Doyle. Welcome to Papa Bear Hikes. Uh, greetings. Hello. And it's 18 traverses of the Appalachian Trail, nine through hikes and nine section hikes. Wow. Okay, so, yeah, this way. isn't like, okay, I'm going to skip this section because I've been there, done it. You hiked every step of it a total of 18 times. Wow. I'm, I'm working on my first section hike of it. I'm Before the pandemic, I was hoping that this okay. would have been the year I'd have been halfway there, but still working towards it. I'm going to be in New Hampshire this year. So, um, uh, yeah. So let's, um, and tell us a little bit about yourself. I mean, where did this start with you, this uh, your, your love for hiking? Because obviously to hike the trail that often, where did that start? Well, I first uh, discovered the majesty of the mountains above Timberline in the White Mountains in New Hampshire at the age of 18. And I was awestruck. And then I kept on doing backpacking in the Adirondacks and up in the Whites and up two weeks a year and while I was an undergraduate. And then I, uh, when I became a graduate student, I... Uh, after my volunteer work experience in the mountains of Jamaica and on the edge of the coal fields in West Virginia, I started to question the society I was becoming a, being molded into. So I had to go on a pilgrimage or a walkabout and uh, find out who I really was in an environment that didn't know any prejudice or discrimination. So I was, you know, I was going to find out myself in an environment that was going to be very simple and very yeah, I've honest. spoken to a number of AT through hikers, and it seems to be a common theme. There's almost an epiphany or a transition that people go through while they're through hiking is that, well, you know, that life is maybe, maybe, I don't know, I'm simplifying it or trying to put it in a nutshell here. There's a lot more to life than just going back and getting on that hamster wheel and, you know, trying to fit in. Uh, that almost you maybe learn how to embrace the greater things in life. Um, I didn't hear that last part, but uh, I heard about the fitting in. Um, I think I don't mind real life. Uh, I fit my trail life and the freedom that and simplicity and the direction that the trail has given me into my real life. So I don't feel suppressed in my real life. Uh, my freedom is 
between my ears and uh, what has filled between my ears is countless honest, truthful miles between Georgia and Maine. So uh, I keep that blaze shining within me all the time. Now, you didn't just complete one through hike and say, okay, I'm been there, done that. What motivated you to, to keep going back and doing the through hikes? Well, I've only done one through hike alone. Uh, solo, all the other eight through hikes were organizing groups of people as a labor of love to walk the entire Appalachian Trail. And I did that because it was my calling. I consider myself a social change educator. And this allowed me to have the type of education I wanted to share with people that was not institutionalized. So, you know, I was a college teacher. and Every five years, I uh, organized a group and we walked the whole Appalachian Trail. Uh, all I had to do was miss, like, the last week of school and the first week of school in the fall semester. And, you know, the schools were fine with that because, uh, you know, it was a really noble activity. So uh, my section hikes that I've done, you know, those were mostly done alone. Uh, but, you know, usually I'd spend two or three weeks a year. But back then I was, you know, hiking 30 or 35 miles a day. So if you have two nine-day periods, that's, uh, you know, 270 miles. So that only takes you about, uh, you know, 10 weeks to, well, less than 10 weeks, nine weeks to finish the trail. So, uh, you know, so I was always very disciplined about it and very uh, task-oriented. Uh, so that's the routine I had. I did a section hike every five years between the, expeditions, the group hikes, and then I did the uh, group hikes every uh, And this love of calling you have for the trail, it continues. Am I right? You know, right now, as we're speaking, from what I understand, you're helping other thru-hikers. Yes. Yeah, well, I'm, uh, I do as a service now, now that I'm retired. I don't do any more expeditions of the whole trail, but I get a lot of emails from people that ask me if I'm still doing these groups. I said, well, uh, I do these smart hikes, I call them, and one is 31 days from Damascus, Virginia, south to Springer Mountain. We usually do that in April and early May, and we're presently on the Virginia smart hike, and that's doing all of Virginia from Damascus, Virginia, up to Harpers Ferry, and that's 32 days. Then, you know, I take the summer off and do stuff at the folk school, and then on August the 24th, uh, we'll have a 24-day hike of all of Maine, uh, all the way up to Cantata. So, you know, if people go on these smart hikes, they'll be able to day hike, you know, maybe a little bit more than half. So can you tell trail. us a little bit about what a smart hike is? Well, I just call it a smart hike because uh, I feel it's better to be a smart hiker than a strong hiker, right? Now, when I, quotes retired from uh, purposeful hiking on the AT at the age of uh, 68, my knees still didn't hurt. You know, uh, I never hurt my knees. 
and I contribute that to the fact that I think I was a smart hiker, or I learned to be a smart hiker without before I did uh, any sort of permanent damage to my body. So, you know, I feel walking the trail is like a chess game, and the trail is the chess master, and you can never, ever beat the chess master. But the fun thing is, is to play it, play the trail to a draw. So at the end of Katahdin, you know, you could just smile at the mountain and say, you know, nice game, nice game. And so a smart hike is, you know, I'm about walking. I'm not necessarily about backpacking. You know, I've done a lot of backpacking. But uh, why carry a heavy backpack like a burro or a donkey when you can day hike the entire Appalachian Trail? And which you can't. You can day hike the entire Appalachian Trail. And so I think the question is, especially for these older people that have waited their whole lives to walk the trail, uh, they get out on the trail and their bodies just aren't strong enough for the rigors of, of backpacking. And so, you know, so then they they uh, stop, you know, and so they have their dreams deferred, you know. And so on their deathbeds, you know, they can say, well, I tried backpacking the Appalachian Trail, but I couldn't do it. Or they can say, I walked the entire Appalachian Trail and I am a through hiker. Mm-hmm. So to me, that's yeah. smart. Yeah, you talk it. I'd rather be smart yeah, than strong. Right. It's better to be smart and, than strong for sure. And, you know, I, I, I can relate to this. I, I did. I damaged my knees before I started trying to section hike the Appalachian Trail. And I'm saying, wow, this makes a lot of sense. And the reason sure. why I'm doing the whites this year is because a piece of advice I'd gotten two years from somebody who had finished her section hike that I'd met in Massachusetts said, hey, do it in your 50s because your knees aren't going to get any better. Well... Yeah, you do the hard, the 227 miles from Glencliff, New Hampshire to Little Bigelow Lean To. You do that 227 miles if you're doing a section hike. You do it sooner rather than later because the trail does discriminate against age because as we age, the thing we lose first is our agility. And you need to be quite agile to do that 227 miles because it's just not walking. It's lowering. It's pulling. It's lifting. There's a lot of other things besides just standing upright and walking on yes. a smooth pathway. And you, you talked about treating the trail like a chess match. You know, I, I I led youth when I was a scout leader in doing some high adventure treks where we would do we did sections of the Appalachian Trail from the Delaware Water Gap to uh, through to, to Bear Mountain, New York, over the course of two years. And I used to tell the kids. Don't come out here thinking you're going to conquer the trail or conquer Mother Nature. It's going to beat you every time if, no. you, if you come out with that attitude. Right. That's I'd like to talk about 1973. You set the first fastest yes. known uh, record for the speed record for the for the trail. You did it 1973 yeah. before we had all this ultralight equipment and all these technical shoes and everything. I started yes. my coincidentally my first backpacking trip as a kid was in 1973. So I know what people were wearing and you did this wearing jeans and i remember wearing jeans on my first backpacking trip and my father telling me well that's so you don't get ticks you know you don't want to wear shorts but tell us about 1973 setting that record can you tell us about 1973 and setting that record what it was like um well yeah i needed you know like this was my rite of passage you know i needed to find out who i was i needed to find out 
not how much I can take, but how much I could give up of my cultural conditioning. You know, my com- I had to expand my comfort level. I had to expand my threshold of pain. Um, I had to learn to become more flexible and adaptable and go with the flow and don't, don't fight the trail. So, um, yeah, it was, uh, I was, you know, I had done the long trail this summer before, so I knew a little bit about backpacking, but, you know, I didn't bring a stove. You know, I was mentioning to someone, geez, I was cooking on a fire, trying to set a record cooking on a fire. <laughs> and, you know, pretty soon that took so much time. I just ate cold food. But, you know, uh, the first 700 plus miles I, I backpacked and, and uh, you know, back then that, you know, people carried the weight and we didn't think anything of it because that's just what people did. Um, I carried a two quart canteen around my neck, <laughs> which I think was pretty interesting. Uh, but, you know, then my dad came, came down on, he was a toll collector and he had accumulated some vacation time and he asked if he could come down and drive support for me. So I said, sure, dad. And, you know, I'm first generation in college. And, you know, when I went off to college, my dad, even though I didn't hold it against him at all, just felt that he couldn't help me anymore because he didn't know about semesters and majors and minors. And so here I was at the age of 23 and he was, he was helping me. And uh, I certainly appreciated his, his help. So I just slept in the back of the station wagon a lot but sometimes I if the road crossings weren't you know set up uh, well I would just you know backpack into the woods and camp camp out and then right near the main border uh, right after I got into Maine uh, he had to go back home and I backpacked the rest of the way through Maine uh, but yeah it was uh, it was an ordeal uh, I certainly got what I wanted to get and even more so uh, and the gifts that I got from that journey uh, have lasted me my entire life so uh, you know that was a gift you know I'm very grateful to the trail for giving me that and I, I feel proud that I allowed myself to receive that gift from yeah, the trail. A lot has changed in the backpacking community and on the Appalachian Trail since 1973. Uh, so let's start with your gear. Uh, you know, people are out trying to set that record. That's almost become a thing now where people are trying to set fastest known times on different trails. But the gear comparisons, gear today versus what, because like I said, I, that's around the time I, as a kid I was backpacking. The difference in the gear between 1973 and 2021. We'll be back after a quick break. You ever think about what might be in the water you're drinking? Every time you fill up your water bottles while you're in the outdoors? I try not to, and I really don't because I use Sawyer water filters. Sawyer filter technology, because of their high standards, every filter is individually tested three times through the process. I've been using the permethrin product for years now to protect me from well, quite frankly, ticks and the picaridin to keep the flies at bay. Don't let bad water, insects, or a tick bite cut your trip short or even ruin it. Use Sawyer products. Go to your local outdoor retailer and ask for Sawyer products, whether it's a water filter, insect repellent, they'll likely have it. You can also go to Sawyer's website and read more about these incredible, high-quality products that they offer those of us who enjoy the outdoors. (laughs) I think the biggest gear 
thing in terms of weight as the headlights. Of course, a lot of people didn't hike at night back then because they didn't have to, but I had a hike at night, and the only headlight available was a metal case with four diesel yes, batteries. So, now compared to the headlights today, you know, that was a big, big weight differential. Um, you know, of course, uh, it wasn't as much nylon or lightweight nylon. Um, but, you know, it's just one of those things, you know, people were still able to hike the trail. I mean, you know, you, you say, you know, there's lightweight gear now, but, you know, the failure rate on the Appalachian Trail of people who say that they're going to walk from Georgia to Maine or Maine to Georgia has really not uh, decreased. You know, there's still a 75% failure rate uh, on the trail. And, you know, to me, as a educator, that's a lot of misinformation. People just are are not prepared correctly to succeed on the trail. I mean, if I was a college, I was a college teacher, if I gave a final exam to my students and 75% of them failed, it wouldn't be the student's fault, it would be my fault. So there's just lots of misinformation. And I hate to see people waste their time and money. And, uh, you know, I don't think, I think when you fulfill your dreams, you're a happier person than if you don't fulfill your dreams. So uh, to me, the strength of my nation uh, is dependent on the percentage of citizens who reside in it who have fulfilled their dreams. Because deferred dreams can lead to violence and greed and withdrawal. So I feel, and, and I know a proper preparation can work because of the eight circular expeditions I brought up the trail, seven of them had had a 100% completion rate. In 1975, we had 19 students, primarily from the University of Connecticut, and they all finished. So it can be done with proper preparation, but there's lots of misinformation out there. People, you know, walking the Appalachian Trail is major league. People don't realize it. And you know, if we draw an analogy to baseball, since I said major league, nobody goes from T-ball to the major leagues. Nobody. And you have to go through little league and high school ball and Babe Ruth, American Legion, college ball. And then before you can get to the majors, they'll still put you in the minor leagues for a while. But people are just going from T-ball to a major league outdoor adventure and that's why so many and you know the outdoor adventure industry doesn't care about the completion rate they just want to buy their equipment matter of fact they sort of lead you seduce you to believe that if you have this equipment this pack and this uh air, you know sleeping pad and this tent that you will succeed well i'm sure you you've seen maybe even seen it or heard the stories right people go out and spend I'm, not, I'm probably not exaggerating here. Two thousand dollars on gear, right? You could spend easily spend two thousand dollars on gear, and not finish the trail. That expensive gear isn't going to guarantee a finish. Yeah, well, oh, of course not. And you know, yeah, we do a price analysis, you know, of the extremes in Appalachian Trail Institute. I ask the people, okay, how much are tents going for, and boots, and stoves, and the whole gear list, and then I tell them what I pay for my gear. And, you know, the difference is you know, close to $2,000. You know, take uh, trekking poles. You don't need two poles. There, people never had two poles before. I was the person that introduced the ski pole to the uh, hiking world, at least on the AT. 
and those ski poles are reused and recycled. This is before it became, you know, some fad, reuse, recycle. Well, you know, I go to a thrift store, see a ski pole, it's not being used, buy it for a dollar, and it lasts me the whole way. And, you know, so why should people pay a $120 for trekking poles that are going to break down? Well, I see these trekking poles, right? And, and so, they are just a glorified ski pole. When you think about it, it's a ski pole that folds up, maybe a little lighter, but... Well, that pretty much does the same thing. Well, they break down. Maybe not as strong as a, a ski pole. <laughs> well, they have, you know, if you have a, a trekking pole that has 60 parts, if it has 60 parts, chances of it breaking down uh, with the ski pole that only has six mm -hmm. parts is going to be that much yeah. greater. Uh, yeah, that I, I kind of I look at a lot of this... This isn't recreational hiking. Now, maybe for recreational hiking, people going out for a weekend and stuff, but people going on a long-distance hike, forget it. You know, you're not getting your money's worth. You know, I just We had one of the hikers just buy a new pair of fancy uh, boots because his boots were coming apart, and they, they're already delaminated. And I know he spent about $180 for them. I said, you can go to Walmart here and get... Ozark Carlin's men's hikers for 20 bucks, and they'll last longer than your $180 boots yeah. from an outfitting store. Yeah, I, I see a lot of that. But, you know, I can't, you know, yeah. well, you know, I'm, I'm practicing practical poverty now in my retirement, but I've always, you know, people say, you know, I think there'll be somebody in the future that walks the trail more times than I do, but they're not going to be from the same demographic. They won't, wouldn't be married, raising two kids, putting them through college and, you know, never losing a job or never, never giving up a job to do the trail. You know, there'll be probably a trust fund person or uh, somebody that claims disability when they're really young and collecting some sort of government check uh, every month. But, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not wealthy and, uh, and so, but I'm frugal. And I just have not been seduced by the outdoor adventure industry. I think that could make it intimidating for people to want to try. Now, as a scout leader, when I was preparing kids, I always sat down with the parents and said, hey, don't start spending a bunch of money on gear. Let's look around. If you don't have a backpack, we'll, we'll find one for you to borrow. And, you know, I watched both youth and adults successfully do 40 miles in a week with an old external backpack. Know, not sure. having to spend five hundred dollars on a super uber light backpack and having a, a good having a good time doing it. Um, you know, I have a. Yeah. I'd like to think a long distance hike is is. I would like to think it's a resistance to everything that's in the real world rather than an acceptance of it or a reflection. Yeah, that's an interesting it. observation, right? Because you know, you going out and doing it, it's kind of you're kind of. A, it's a, um, I don't know, maybe, I, I, don't, I don't know if I'm going to put it the right way. It's kind of a counterculture type of thing to do anyway, right? You're going to go out and live in the woods for five or six months, but then you're going to buy into the consumerism of saying, okay, I need the biggest and the best and, the, you know, all, all these nice shiny things to do it. It's kind of yeah. uh, counter counterintuitive maybe to, 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 to go about it that way, I would think. Well, it is counterculture in terms of everything that's made in our society is to make our lives easier or quicker and walking the Appalachian Trail isn't easier or quicker you know you you've decided to do something that's slow and it's uncomfortable and the only way you're going to walk the 
trail is if you accept the inherent difficulty of a long distance hike and you accept it, once you accept it and give up that control, uh, that's when you could start enjoying. Warren, a lot of hike through hikers have these moments, even sec- section hikers. I've gone through it. You have those days when you're on one of these hikes where maybe you're just having a bad day or you're starting to question why you're doing this. Have you exper- have you ever experienced any of that in your through hikes? No, um, there was a good uh, uh, thread on White Blaze a long time ago. Someone asked the question, where were you on your through hike when you knew you were going to finish? And I had to think about that. That's pretty cool. And in my first through hike on the record attempt, I didn't know I was going to finish until I was on Kentucky. It was that much of an ordeal, you know, because I could have fallen anywhere and, and not gotten the record after all that walking. So I was, you know, nervous. But uh, with all the groups I organized, the first time I knew I was going to finish, the trail was my first step off of Springer Mountain. I, I interviewed Cy Sizemore, who just wrote a book uh, back in May about his through hiking experience in 1999. And I asked him, uh, you know, what motivated him. And, and he, he got into it and he told me that he knew from Springer Mountain, you know, he he, he had things going on outside in, in his life off the trail motivated him to want to hike but he said look when i got to springer mountain i knew i was finishing this one way or the other even if i had to crawl i was getting there Um, some people i think just have that motivation right from the beginning that hey i know this is going to be tough and sometimes it's going to be really tough but i'm going to get there well it's easy to say uh but a lot of people just don't just they they just don't spend enough time imagining the worst case scenario you know so uh i know when i was training for my uh record hike you know i was a graduate student i also was a resident assistant in dorm one day in the winter i just uh, got into the shower with all my clothes on and got all my clothes wet and stuff and spent the whole day not taking off my clothes and you know walking across campus and you know 20 degree weather uh, just to get that feeling of uh, you know what it would be like I went camping I I spent one semester uh, camping in a tent during my graduate uh, years and uh, you know just to get that feel of putting on frozen boots in the morning and how do you prevent that so you know a lot of people aren't going to take and if you're going to do a practice hike you'll go out in bad weather don't avoid it because uh, you are going to have that. Yeah, if you if you try to do your warm up or shakedown hikes around the weather, boy, you you just setting yourself up for some disappointment and maybe a bad experience. I agree with you on that. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, it's it's you know, it's happening now here in Virginia. You know, there are through hikers that are stopping in Virginia because they thought it was flat. You know, or some they didn't think it was rocky in Virginia. They you know think, oh, I thought the rocks were in Pennsylvania and New Jersey, and then they're surprised to see some of these rocks in the Ridge and Valley province just south of Daleville and some rocks up here in central Virginia just south of the Shenandoah. And uh, so I don't know what they're expecting, but Virginia isn't flat. I mean, we've known for a long time that the earth isn't flat, and people should know that uh, the earth, that Virginia isn't flat. Yet every year, everyone somehow gets that information. And, you know, the other thing, too, is a, a tent. 
a tarp, and I know this from experience, uh, you know, countless observations on the expeditions, uh, that a tarp will keep you drier than a tent will. Uh, a tarp will keep you drier than a tent will. Yet, you know, like people buy tents, you know, I mean, the tent will keep you warmer maybe than a tarp, but it's not going to keep you drier. So people are uh, very surprised when they get wet in their tents. And, you know, their tent gets wet, it's harder to dry out. And so then they just start sleeping in shelters, which, you know, or they go to hostels now. A lot of people are using hostels. And, boy, it's costing a lot of money. I think probably this year uh, a lot of people are going to stop for financial reasons. And, and the only ones that are going to continue are the ones that are going to be able to wire home to mom and dad or grandpa or grandma asking them for some money because the, the hike is costing them more uh, than they thought. Now, it's one thing in the past, it might have been because they were partying too much, you know, they had to buy beer or pot or whatever, but nowadays it's like paying for shuttles and for hostels. And, you know, people don't hitchhike anymore, you know, they, they take shuttles. A lot of people spend a lot of time in hostels. There's more hostels now, so there's, there's those temptations there. And, you know, to me, uh, a great challenge would be to walk the whole trail yeah, without pain. Anything. Right, you know, going back to 1973, that has to be a, a, a big change from, from when you first hiked, right? I mean, I doubt you had this hostel industry, this, this now sure. sub-industry around, that's grown around the trail with these hostels and sh people that provide shuttles. Oh, yeah. And, uh, and, you know, and so, you know, there's other changes, too, in terminology. You know, words are powerful, you know, slack packing. You know, that, that's referring to now day hiking. That's what we call day hiking. And the, the person that uh, introduced the word of slack packing was O.D. Coyote in 1980. And it was, he had an unpublished manuscript. Well, he self-published his narrative, which is a lot better than Bill Bryson's is. But, you know. O.D. Coyote didn't have a $5,000 cash advance before he started to write a book, before he started his hike. And O.D. Coyote's subtitle of his book was The World's Slowest Traverse of the Appalachian Trail. He did it in like 11 and a half months. And slack packing for him, he's the first one that coined it, is just taking it really easy. If he only wanted to walk two miles and stop because he saw something interesting, he would. But now it's been, you know... It's been, you know, he was quite upset about 15 years later at a Calder gathering that his word had been bastardized into, you know, connoting, you know, day hiking, basically. And uh, for my generation, slacking is irresponsible or, you know, lazy. And what we do in the expeditions, although it's day hiking, certainly isn't slack. You know, if we, we have a 140-day schedule, we follow a schedule that the people agree upon beforehand and we like we only have two rest days so when it's raining or it's cold or whatever it's or if it's super hot we're still out there hiking now there's nothing slack about that also people used to just follow the blue blazes all i mean the white blazes all the time it was just a matter of honor and you know now the word you know we've been got labeled a word that's i think demeaning <laughs> And that's called purist. And so that's a, uh, a word that I don't, you know, particularly. I, I don't get that either. myself. You either hiked it or you didn't hike it, right? 
Well, for some people, it, it's fine. I mean, people, you know, it's it's all what you claim at the end. So, you know, basically, you know, with the rise of everything, you know, people say, I walked the whole Appalachian Trail except for these sections. That's fine. There's some people that are comfortable with that. But, you know, if I'm going to see your picture in some ad and backpacker making some money off of a claim, then, you know, that's something that I'd rather not see. So now, you know, for the last 20 years, I say I've walked the entire Appalachian Trail. I always put the word entire in. I want to talk about your incident on Mount Katahdin. You had a little incident on one of your through hikes. Tell us about that. Yeah. Sure. Well, September 2nd, 1970, well, uh, late August 1975, you know, it was our first group, 19 students. And I didn't want anybody to break any laws or anything like that. I felt a responsibility. So I called up Baxter State Park from Monson about a week before we were to finish. I said, I got this group of people here. There's 19 of us, and we've come through the White Mountains, and we've come through Saddleback and all these other places. And I understand you have this rule that if it's raining, this is the summertime now, it's around Labor Day, uh, you have a rule that the mountain is closed. And I said, I said, no, we have this group of 19. You know, the schedule is tight. You know, we're scheduled to finish on this day, September 2nd, and then drive back and start class the next day. University of Connecticut and you know the director at the time uh, you know and I told him I said look when we get there I'm going to listen to the weather forecast from FAA up in Holton Mass and if there's a chance of icing here on September 2nd uh, we won't go up because we can't handle ice but we certainly can handle rain you know we've been rained on and a lot in the whites and stuff like that and there's a group of 19 of us and we take care of each other and you know so the the supervisor said, okay, I'll do, see what I can do. So that sounded optimistic to me. So we walked through the main wilderness there and I, I go ahead to Katahdin campground and the ranger there, uh, what hadn't been notified that we're coming through, you know, so he radioed in and of course, you know, the supervisor trying to save face, you know, then the, what he, he did was, uh, just said we couldn't go up and, uh, you know, it's just this bureaucratic response. You know, you have 19 people that walk the whole way, this uh, historic journey through all sorts of weather, overcoming all sorts of sickness and injury to be stopped by this bureaucracy saying that we couldn't handle the last five miles of the Appalachian Trail. And, you know, so I drove into Millinocket and, you know, he basically gave me the standard response. If we do it for you, we'll have to do it for other people and all blah, 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 blah. And, you know, so, you know, I couldn't, you know, he had the authority, you know, Baxter State Park authority. So, but, you know, he couldn't, he certainly couldn't uh, tell me not how to feel about it. So I let him know how I felt about it, not in words, but just through my eyes. And, you know, and then we start heading out and they got all the flashing uh, ranger cars coming out and they seal off both entrances of Katahdin Street Campground and the, he, he activated uh, the uh, rangers and they all put a formed a line across the thing and basically read us a riot act. We weren't going to climb the mountain, you know, but, you know, it's this really show of force that was very disappointing, you know, so we had our final surf up Katahdin Street Campground and then Went back to the university, and then about two weeks later, we all 
drove the 600, 700 miles up to finish. But, you know, it was, you know, for many years, there'd be people that walked the whole Appalachian Trail and they would get to Katana Stream Campground and wait around for two or three days for it to stop raining. And they'd have to go home without finishing the last five miles. So I knew I was going to do another expedition in 77. So this was also through students. So we did research. I had a class where we did research about, you know, backcountry management. And we researched all the backcountry places in the United States and found out that Baxter State Park was the only place that restricted people from climbing the mount, a mountain in the summertime uh, uh, in the rain. Now, remember, Katahdin is not a glacial mountain. It doesn't have crevasses or anything like that. So uh, we drove up and we asked to speak, go through the proper channels. We asked to speak to the board of directors there. So they gave us some time and we did a nice presentation about this and uh, tried to go through proper channels and they still wouldn't change. So then we reverted to acts of civil disobedience, principled civil disobedience. And the first year we climbed Katahdin illegally in the winter, you know, it's a, quite the winter climb. We, we didn't get caught. Second year, we got caught. And so instead of paying a $25 fine, I went to court, you know, and then the lady said, well, you just give $25, make the check out to the clerk or something. He said, no, I'm, it says it's also uh, our uh, jail time. And I said, I choose jail. And so she said, well, $25, that'd be one one night in jail. And so I thought I was going to just go to the jail and mill knock it downstairs from the court, but it was renovating. So being renovated, so I had to drive about 90 miles down Route 11 to Dover Foxcroft, Piscataquis County, and, you know, enter the jail that way. And so I, I go in, I had my briefcase with me because I was going to write a letter from my jail cell, just like Thoreau did and Gandhi did and uh, Martin Luther King did and uh, I get in there and, you know, there's all these, you know, big tough guys, maybe about four of them that were in for breaking into sporting camps. And one of them said, whose lawyer are you? And I said, well, I'm not anybody's lawyer. I said, I'm in here. You know, I'm in here for a night. And he said, and they said, well, for what? And I said, for climbing a mountain. And, you know, the guy said, boy, they put people in jail for that. I said, well, back to state park they do. So anyways, this generated, I knew I had the regional newspapers behind me. So this generated a lot of negative publicity and that helped to get this rule changed. And I wrote my letter from jail. Yeah. As you were t- telling this story for, right from the beginning, I said, hey, he must, he must know about this guy, this fellow New Englander of his by the name of Henry David Thoreau. That's the first thing that popped into my mind. But Yeah. Right. And Edward Abbey, he wasn't from New England, but. Yeah. Obey little, and resist much. Did this bring um, the attention you wanted to? I mean, you know, because something you know, people have to understand. Sometimes it takes acts of civil disobedience to bring attention to an injustice. Sure. Oh yeah. And to me, it was tremendously unjust to have people walk that sacred pilgrimage route only to be stopped by. Because it sounds like they were in your first attempt with the students from Connecticut. It just sounds like they were way over the top. First of all, right. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 Well, you know, and they were known, you know, even the local people didn't like them. There, there was a period of time the administration of Baxter State Park was close to totalitarianism. 
it All seems like apart. there's still a little bit of that about I'm sorry, a little bit of that going on today. I remember reading just a couple of years ago they were threatening to oh, close yeah, Baxter down to hikers. Yeah. yeah. Well that was you know, that was well, that's a whole different story. You know, that was with Scott Jurek and his uh, all his entourage up on the mountain and stuff. And you know, no. Scott didn't help right. his getting pictures of drinking alcohol. That, so he was he was pretty blatant about that. Yeah. Um, yeah. What's going on at Katahdin? Right? There's more people. Is 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 this becoming an issue throughout the trail? Do you think? I mean, we have there's obviously more, a lot more people on the trail now than back in your day, back in the '70s. Because again, I, I hiked those sections in New Jersey as a kid almost every year from about '70 to '73 up and through the yeah. '80s, and I can remember coming across a few through hikers. Now, if you go through now, you hit that bubble. Your those shelters are packed, right? I mean, so what kind of an impact yeah. is that having on the trail? First, in terms of regulations, and you know with Local, state, and federal agencies. Well, I'm happy to report that the Appalachian Trail, of all three trails, is still the least regulated. Certainly, the uh, trail that has the least amount of, of permits and, and paying for permits. And you know that was part of you know all those efforts in the first 15 years of its existence. You know, the Appalachian Long Distance Hikers Association. We made sure we were, you know sitting at the table when these policies were being made because a long distance hikers needs an impact on the environment is a lot different than someone driving their Winnebago into a campground and having an in, in infrastructure and stuff. I mean, there's lots of people on trail, you know, now, especially social media with the vlogging, you know, people are seeing it, you know, uh, you know, there's people now that are, uh, have a lot of free time on their hands. Uh, you know, they want to leave a simpler lifestyle, and uh, they think that the trail is going to give them a new direction. But you know, if if you're not disciplined, if you're not a hard worker, if you're not tolerant, you know, if if you don't have the proper temperament, you know, the trail is just going to chew you up and spit you out, and you'll be in the same place you were. Yeah, I was think you don't want to go out there with the expectations of it changing your life or giving you the answers to, to life's problems. Go out there for the hike. Go out there to do the through to, to complete it. Those other things are incidentals. Well, you have to humble yourself. And for me, I trust everything that the trail has done for me. I trust it. I don't control it, but I trust it. And uh, that certainly is and the uh, others helpful. The trail isn't out there for me. I'm out there for the trail. I've chosen the trail as my teacher. I've chosen the trail as my spiritual The part guide. two to this. And when I say the trail, all I mean is that long, bright, round, that long round path leading wherever I choose. And I ask not good fortune. I myself am good fortune. That's from Walt Whitman's Song of the Open Road. And that trail owes me nothing. I owe everything to the trail. And so I don't, you know, I don't stay in hostels. I don't stay in shelters. I'm not, I'm not buying into the system. Right. Because it's, I hate to use this word, but there's almost a commercial commercialization that is 
starting to take place here. And I don't know if we could blame it on uh, or point to Bill Bryson's book or the rise in the attention it gets on social media with the YouTubes, but it, it, it's, it certainly looks that way or starting to take on that look. Yeah. Well, yeah, that's kind of, you know, change is constant. Change has to be accepted. And, you know, I can't change it. I can't change it. The only person I have control over is what's between my two ears, okay? The person I look at in the mirror. And so my mantra in, in you know, like Pursuits of Endurance, the book that Jennifer Farr Davis did, my, the subtitle of my chapter was, if you can't beat them, don't join them. So I can't stop violence in the world. I can't stop greed. I can't stop the war. I can't stop all this these equipment outfitters. But I'm certainly not going to join them. I'm just going to say to them, no, this is one person you're not going to seduce. Yeah, that, that's interesting because I've had this conversation even with my own children. It's like, you know, well, you know, do you really think you're going to make a difference, Dad, if you don't spend your money here or if you don't go to that establishment because you don't agree with something they did? I said, that's not what matters to me. What matters to me is that when I go to bed at night, they didn't get my money. <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. I'd like to move on to the American Long Distance Hiking Association. Uh, you're the founder of that? That's correct. Is that correct? Yes, so, I am. When did, yeah. where, how did that start? What was the what was the uh, background of that? Well, um, you know, there was a rise in, in through hikers in the 70s, early 80s, and the ATC priority wasn't through hikers, you know. And so, but, you know, it was all these people that wanted to keep on hiking, you know, and so... I was at the Folk Life Center, Don West Place, and I had this facility, so I asked him if I could have a gathering of long-distance hikers, and he said, yeah. So I had the first gathering in the fall of 1982. Back then, there wasn't any emails or anything, so it was a lot of uh, sending out first-class envelopes with stamps and things like that. But I got, you know, Gene Cashin of the ATC gave me the list of all the through-hikers up to that point, and, you know, I felt good that we at least sent... Uh, notices of the gathering and you know we had like 225 people show up from a bunch of states and it was a tremendous celebration it was a really uh very uplifting time it was a uh, time and a place and it was needed and then i asked the group the last day of the gathering if they wanted to have an organization not nothing really uh bureaucratic but a good folk organization and they said, yeah. I said, well, I'll get a meeting together in the spring, and uh, I'll invite all the park, you know, I'll invite HEC, National Park Service, maintainers, dreamers, trail angels, and we'll have this meeting in Harpers Ferry. And that's the meetings about five, six months later in March. That's when we recreated the Appalachian Long Distance Hikers Association, came up with our objectives. We didn't want to be an inclusive bunch it was for everybody just not 2,000 milers but for anyone that had an interest in the 2,000 miler experience and that's that's an organization that's still in existence today it's still functional yes yeah and and it, it, it kept to its original mission really well for like 20 to 25 years I was impressed it was you know because you know we'd have coordinators most of them would only serve two years, and then there'd be a new coordinator. And uh, so for many, many, many years, it served its original mission. 
but then just like anything, things change and it, it got off track. Unfortunately, it became more in bed with the Appalachian trail conservancy. Uh, and now they're finding out that, uh, the Appalachian Trail Conservancy is is not necessarily a good bedmate for all the. Mm-hmm. I knew that. All right, it sounds all like initially maybe it was more of an, an advocacy group for the hikers, utilizing the trail. Right? Yeah. 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 You oh, know, yeah. you talked about this being a calling, and as I'm looking at some of the, uh, you know, not just your hikes, but things you've been involved in, the the hiking association. There's also the Appalachian Trail Institute, which you're the creator of. Yes. How did that come to be? Well, uh, you know, that was as an educator. I wanted to, you know, I had done uh, three expeditions, uh, all with almost 100% completion rates. And, you know, we had a really good preparation period beforehand. And so I was the director of the... uh, Outdoor Education Center, Hemlock Overlook. I was the first director in Northern Virginia, so I had the facility that wasn't being used in the wintertime. And uh, so I said, hey, I'm going to develop a five-day program like Elder Hostel or Road Scholar, you know, really inexpensive, and say that people can come to it who are planning their own hikes, and I'll give them a condensed version of uh, the preparation information. And then I would follow these people to see if they actually finish i'd ask them to please report on the outcome and you know lo and behold you know about 75 percent of them who went to the appalachian trail institute who actually started their hikes finished so i said well this is good so i kept on doing it i've been doing it since 1989 it's uh you know that's you're still involved this is still part of your life oh i'm sorry Uh, not for 31 years how could somebody go about uh, getting information on this or, or taking part in it? Well, it's just my website. Just go to my website. That's www. And we'll make sure we put that in the description for the for the episode. And yeah, www.warrendoyle.com. Yeah, Warren, you know, say here. I have about 18 people coming in for my session on July 5th. Uh, July 5th to the 9th is my next session. And. Uh, I got a good group coming in. I even have a family coming in with three kids. Yeah, as an educator cool and 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 a love somebody who loves the the trail, this you're you're not working. This you're you're doing something you love doing. You're teaching and you're teaching about something that's important to you or you you love. Call. Right. Yeah, it's your call. It's my calling. You know, it's not it's not designed by an institution. You know, no institution told me to do this. You know, I. I developed it myself. It, it comes from my heart. It comes from my values. Yeah, that, and I trust you know, it. And that's, that's really, that's a way to live. Yeah, you're just, you know, we don't always have that choice, but, you know, when you can make that happen or when you're, well, when you can embrace it, when you, because you have to make sacrifices for those things to happen. Yeah. That's, and that's great. It's great for you. And it's, it's I, I think the entire trail community benefits. From yeah. it. Thank you. Thank you for recognizing that. You know, Robert Frost says at the end of uh, Two Tramps in Mud Time, he says, the noblest goal in one's life is to make one's avocation, one's vocation, as your two eyes see as one. Yes. That's beautiful. You know, I love poetry, as your two eyes see as one. Because, you know, if we don't cover one eye, our vision is one, but we have two eyes. Yeah. 
so it's seamless. Now, the, the traffic on the Appalachian Trail, we've seen it, you know, an increase of people out there attempting to through-hike it, and it's probably yeah. not going to shrink. It's probably going to continue to grow. Do you see the Appalachian Trail having to go in the direction of, like, the Pacific Crest Trail now? They, they have permits of when you can start. Do you see that in the future for the Appalachian Trail, possibly? Well, I hope not. Uh, I guess I'm more of a uh, minimalist in terms of that. I think that, first of all, they should, you know, uh, get the Appalachian Trail Conservancy out of the trail and uh, just form a smaller, maybe two-person, three-person staffed uh, Appalachian Trail group that would coordinate all the hiking clubs because the volunteers are the ones that keep that trail open. And, uh, and just return it back to the old, keep the blazes uh, uh, blazed and the uh, brush cut and the blowdowns cut and uh, be a trail. And, you know, don't build any more shelters. Uh, uh, you know, reduce the amount of information available and make it maybe a little bit, I think, you know, make it a little for, you know, knowing of finding about it, make the information less. Now, that's just too much to ask. But uh, I'd rather have it a big secret. There's a lot of bureaucracy now, right? We've created this whole bureaucracy. The trail has created a bureaucracy within itself here, it sounds like. And, and Yeah. Well, you know, like in the National Park Service, you know, they're, you know, they're, they're funded by the number of people that they, visitors they generate. So, you know, that's why you have places like Gatlinburg and Cherokee right outside of national parks and, and uh, you know, infrastructure and all this kind of stuff that a through hiker, the pilgrimage should be as simple and unregulated as possible. It's not, to me, it's not recreation. Um, I think, I think we need to have very simple pilgrimage routes in our country. When, you know, heck, you know, there's people that walk across the country. You don't hear about them, but that's their route. They're going to say, I'm going to walk from, you know, the, Pacific to the Atlantic or the Atlantic to the Pacific. They almost take a Forrest Gump approach, you know, where he's just, he loves to run. He loves to walk, you know. And then he, after a long time, he goes, you know, I'm tired. I right. There was no special home. recognition or payoff for it. He was doing it for himself. And when he was done, he was done. Yeah. yeah. Uh, right. So, uh, Warren, you gave us the website. Is there any social media that uh, you'd like us to Go check you out. No, I, I, yeah, I'm on Facebook. Uh, you know, just you know, my name, Facebook. Uh, but yeah, social media. No, I, I had the website. I have you know, my my wife uh, made it for me, and it's really good. And that's where I, you know, have the information and uh, for the programs that I do and stuff. And I do other things like, you know, I'm a, you know, I'm just as passionate about contra dance, so I'm a Contra dance organizer, you know, Terry and I have organized probably close to 50 national dance events in the last, you know, 20 years. So you're, you're fortunate to have a very supportive spouse as I, as I am as well, because you're right. A lot of these things, unless you, unless you have a supportive spouse and family, they're either not going to happen or you're not going to have a, have a, a marriage. Yeah. Well, 
Yeah. All right. Uh, Warren, uh, thank you uh, so much for giving up your time and coming on Papa Bear Hikes. Uh, you've been listening to Warren Doyle. We will have his information on the website and in the description for the podcast at papabearhikes.com. Uh, once again, Warren, thanks for being so generous with your time. And uh, stay safe out there. You're welcome. And, uh, again, thanks for everything you've been doing and continue to do. Stay f- or stay uh, yes, free. I like that better. Stay, stay free. free. Out there. Okay, stay Warren. Free. Have a great day. Yeah. All right. This episode of Pop Bear Hikes has been brought to you by Avalon Publicity. Avalon Publicity, increasing the digital footprint of content creators and skilled professionals via website development and social media services. For more information about Avalon Publicity, go to their website, avalonbusiness.org. That's avalonbusiness.org.